Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Retailistic. It's Andrew Smith here from Think Uncommon. Deborah Weinswig is out because she's doing some incredible work on the 1010 Shopping Festival, uh, an incredible event that's designed to help uh, normalize a little bit of the shopping curve, but also it does good as well. So please check it out, 1010shoppingfestival.com or go to Coresite. Dot com to get a bit more information about that and see the, the amazing work that Deborah and her uh, great team at Corsi are doing to get that, that event up and running. Um, today, we're going to be talking about retail technology and in particular, retail startup technology. And I'm excited to bring in a couple of guests to talk about it. But first, a traditional cliched Andrew rant is due. Um, retail shifted so much since the COVID change event, and perhaps most importantly, it ended the debate, if it ever was a debate, about physical versus digital retailing. In my view, it's now firmly understood, or at least I think it is in the people I'm talking to, it seems to be firmly understood that this blended channel approach is vital for growth and delivering on the customer expectations that we have in this modern world of retailing. Customers are loving shopping in stores again, uh, and not only just because we've been locked in our houses for a couple of years, but generally speaking, experiences themselves are the things we're trying to collect now. And we now know, uh, or some of us have known the whole time, to be fair, that physical stores therefore aren't going away. We do, however, see the role of the store changing. For example, we've got stores as fulfillment centers. We've got this democratization of the professional shopper. We've got all of this experiential retailing, whatever that is. We're kind of conflating different things as experiential retailing in my point, but that's another rant for another time. Uh, And we're even using stores and the store team's expertise when we're doing things like live streaming. So with uh, these strategic trends shifting back to uh, the investment to in-store and store-centered, at least physical and digital experiences, and trying to make them unique, but also efficient, retail technologists are well positioned for growth. However, marketing is by far their biggest challenge. It's a crowded space. There's lots of startups looking to join in and take some market share as well. And arguably, they've got smarter solutions. It's an incredible um, fun thing to do is to walk down startup zones in uh, whether it be NRF or, or grocery shop or shop talk or wherever. You know, those startups are coming up with some really super smart solutions. For a while, investing and starting a retail tech idea, especially if it involved bricks and mortar stores, was seen as a little bit of a reckless endeavor. But now it definitely isn't, and it's uh, regained its status as cool. Uh, well, at least I think it has. The trouble is, retailers also have a huge number of competing priorities, and therefore a bunch of these innovations, no matter how successful or cool they are, can't be prioritized right now. So here to unpack that with me is Nick McHenry, founder and CEO of Retail Tech. Uh, <laughs> excuse me, let me put my teeth back in. Uh, of Retail Tech Startup One Shop and Adam Davis, serial retail tech entrepreneur. Welcome to both of you, Adam and Nick. Let's start with you, Nick. Tell us about yourself and what brought you into this retail tech scene. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, Andrew. Uh, My name is Nick McHenry. I'm the co-founder and CEO of a retail tech startup called OneShop. We take everything that's great about the in-store experience and bring it online and everything that's great about the e-commerce experience and bring it in store by doing things such as enabling salespeople on the sales floor to create content that can be distributed across all digital channels. It's fully shoppable and then have marketing automations on the back end uh, that have trigger-based value adds to the customer in-store. Uh, I got into retail tech sort of on accident. I'm a retailer through and through. I got my first job at the Mall of America in Minneapolis at PacSun at age 16. And that was basically all she wrote. I started at PacSun. Then I uh, 
took the next logical step, which was move to New York City to get in the heart of it. I really wanted to work in the fashion industry. Uh, took a bunch of several unpaid internships, grinded it out, and then worked my way through the wholesale industry, working for luxury brands like Giorgio Armani, Philip Klein, and, and several others. And then I found a retail tech because there was just so many opportunities that I saw in the inefficiencies of the whole industry, so much pen and paper. Uh, it, feel, it felt like to me that it hadn't changed in uh, people that I was working with were talking to me about how things were in the 80s, and it felt like it was basically operating the exact same way. Uh, so I took the leap into retail tech, started a company with my co-founder, and we're here today. I love your story for a many a reason. Um, but the fact that you've kind of had that kind of fidelity for the boutique as well, like that love of a real traditional shop floor experience, I think is is just super cool. I can't wait to unpack it more with you. Um, Adam, you have... Uh, as I said at the in your in your intro, there you're a serial tech entrepreneur. Tell us your story. Yeah, similar to Nick. A uh, hey, good morning, everybody. My name is Adam Davis. Uh, my story is kind of similar to Nick, actually. Um, in fact, Ron Thurston talks about it in his book uh, Retail Pride about how uh, retail is an accidental career for many people. Uh, I actually started in IT in manufacturing uh, and wholesale. And while I was working in that job, uh, I had a weird opportunity. I worked in wholesale dis- uh, distribution for independent grocers and convenience stores and um, learned a lot about merchandising and direct shelf delivery in that role. And so while I was doing my sort of traditional nine to five IT job, I co-founded with some friends from uh, high school and college a company that worked similar to Lyft or Uber, except instead of matching riders with drivers, we matched uh, independent contractors with brands and distributors who needed products uh, managed on shelves, in-cap displays put together, and things like that. Uh, I was really fortunate to have a small exit in 2020. I said, that's it. That's my last startup. Uh, I'll never do this again. That lasted about six months, uh, and I sort of started and am building one in stealth now uh, with some really great teammates. I am... I. <laughs> I, I love your humility there too, by the way. That, but the, um, I want to come to both of you on this, but Adam, I'm going to start with you. What's it like starting a retail tech startup? Like what, what barriers do you face? What is people's opinion generally? Um, you know, is it welcoming? Is retail supportive of this kind of innovation? Tell me, tell me about the journey of starting up a tech company in the retail sphere. I think two things are really interesting. One is that the cost of entry into any startup, whether it's retail or tech or um, pick your poison, the cost of entry, both financially and skill set wise, has gotten so much lower. Uh, it's very easy. And in the course of a couple of days, using a ton of low code and no code tools, if you're not a software developer, you can stand up a really great Shopify store. You can start an automation services business. Um, the, the hurdle is not money or technology anymore. Um, the hurdle, I think, probably is always going to be filling your funnel, filling uh, your pipeline full of customers who are interested. Um, but the second part of that is, I think retail has been extremely welcoming and is very welcoming to innovation on the micro level. I think every person you talk to, the Nick McHenry's and Andrew Smith's and uh, the aforementioned Ron Thurston's of the world. Everyone's very excited and welcoming um, on a one-on-one basis. I think the problem you run into is at scale. These organizations are so large, especially when you talk about like the the big box stores and the well-established chains that might have you know twelve hundred to thirty-six hundred locations. That's a big ship um, that's very hard to turn quickly. 
And so you have a lot of great people at the local, regional, and, and even corporate levels that want to see change and are welcoming to uh, innovation and welcome to innovators. Um, but I think they see the challenge of trying to implement that at scale. And that's the challenge as a startup founder also. That's so fascinating to me. And Nick, what about you? Have you found it to be pretty similar? Yeah, I would say a lot of the things that Adam said, I definitely agree with, uh, especially the point about, I mean, I don't think starting a, a tech startup in retail is super different than other verticals across other industries. The biggest thing that I would say is that in terms of challenges with a retail tech startup in retail specifically is that it's it's sort of a B2B2C industry. Um, or if you're B2C, it's obviously directly to the consumer. But uh, if you're a B2B company like us, is that because you have that customer element to it, of all the retailers, that is like a second layer of complexity you have to adapt to because the customer changes faster than the businesses do at a much higher rate. So if you're trying to drive sales for them or drive business to the retailer, uh, you have to also think about the shopper itself and what's changing in their mode. And that changes sometimes in a month or six month window at, at a rapid pace. So I think that's kind of an interesting nuance about building a retail tech company today. Got it. I'm. Um, I want to come. I'm going to come to you with this first, Adam. But before I do, uh, I want to rant about the topic itself. The, the question I'm going to ask you is, you know, do tech do retailers need to become tech companies? And the reason I want to ask it is because it's been debated for so long. It's like, you know, oh, we're going to become a tech company now. Every retailer has to become a tech company. Blah blah blah. And I don't necessarily always agree with it because it's not our it's not our core lane, right? And there are so many incredible partners and providers out there that do it. And there is no shame in partnering with people who are better at something than you. And I think we've probably learned that lesson over the last decade or so that it's been, um, unique, um, you know, especially with the COVID change event that, um, you know, we've had to accelerate digital adoption and the use of technology to solve and, and, uh, you know, challenges and, and, uh, take advantage of opportunities. But it's been um, something where traditionally we, you know, the CEO became the most powerful person in a retailer for a little while there. They got all the budget and they kind of led the strategic side of the business. Whereas I think there's been in the last couple of years, you know, this kind of shift back to the fact that actually there's really smart people out there with solutions that would be better than us building it. Is it just a, a, a syndrome thing of we think we should own it or um, am I making all this up, Adam? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I don't think... You know, it's ironic because I'm in retail tech and I'm in stores every day touching the technology that makes the store run. But I don't think retailers should become tech companies. Um, I think we should all be, uh, I think Tony Shea from Zappos, the, the late Tony Shea, probably had the best grasp on this concept, which is that we should be in the business of customer service and technology is just a tool to that end. Uh, it's just a, a way to deliver better service. Now, it it sort of uh, differs on who your customer might be. You know, for Nick and I, our customers are typically the the business and the retailer themselves. But that doesn't doesn't change and shouldn't change how we address our customer service to them, who then hopefully passes that uh, customer experience uh, and customer service onto the customer themselves. So. I mean, I think technology is a great tool. I think it's getting better. I think we're getting better as an industry about implementing it, um, and in some cases, not implementing it, um, and figuring out where people really make the difference versus, you know, robots stocking a shelf or something like that. But uh, yeah, I don't think that we should necessarily think of ourselves as tech companies or data companies. Uh, we should focus on being retailers first and foremost. Love that. Nick, your thoughts? 
Yeah. Um, oh, I, I always love it when Nick starts with that sigh because I know there's a rant coming and I'm, I'm living for it. Yeah, there, there definitely is. I, listen, I think we're going to look back on this period of time in retail and sort of laugh at ourselves. This whole idea of are we a retailer or are we a tech company, in my opinion, is just a fallacy for higher valuations. It's like, great, okay, if we all of a sudden position ourselves as a tech company, our valuations is you know 20x gross revenue. If we're a retail company, it's 5x gross profit. That seems dumb. Let's be a tech company. But in reality, if you hold inventory, if you hold inventory and you and that inventory is sold to customers and it's more than double digits of your revenue, you are not a tech company. You're a retail company. Just like WeWork is not a tech company, they're a tech-enabled real estate company. I think we should be thinking of ourselves as retailers, like how do we embrace tech and enable our retail business? But we're still retailers if you hold inventory in that sense. So I think it's kind of a fallacy to think of you know retail as a tech company when really it's we are retailers enabled by tech, just like every business on earth is a business enabled by tech across every industry. And how do we embrace that? And how do we build tech around that? But I think the idea that retailers are going to become tech companies is basically few and far between slash impossible. If it wasn't a terrible strategy for podcasts, I'd give you a standing ovation. <laughs> um, uh, I couldn't agree more with both of you. I think you have good points well made. It, um, it's definitely been this strange identity crisis. And I also think it's cool too. I think there's an ego element in it as well. It's like the more I can become that tech-led business, not only is it a fallacy of valuation, it's also kind of career making and CV, you know, looking good on my CV. So it's been something that I've always wanted to tackle. I think, and not to mention, if I'm a technologist coming into a retailer who's essentially been relatively, you know, technology is not our first language, let's put it that way. Um, you know, you can be seen as an expert and that's a nice feeling sometimes. So I think, but I'm with you. I'm, I'm hoping that we're at the end of that wave. Um, I want to pivot out to just some cool stuff that's happening. Like what is the most exciting things that's happening in retail tech right now? Um, Adam, I'll start with you. What, what is, what is wetting your appetite when you're logging? I don't know what a day in the life of Adam Davis looks like, to be fair. I imagine it starts early and involves a lot of reading. I don't know why. <laughs> and a cup of tea, a cup yeah. of hot tea. Yeah. That's- I feel the exact same way. <laughs> Yeah, that's very See? that's very generous of you. Um, yeah, so my my day typically starts pretty early. Uh, I'm in stores, so I I do two things as sort of part of my uh, profession. Uh, one is project design and planning for large scale rollouts in retail, whether a retailer is getting a new point of sale system at every store, or getting new network equipment, or new traffic counters. Uh, and then the second part is servicing uh, the things, <laughs> the things that we've installed that inevitably sometimes don't work. Um, and so I'm I'm in stores on a daily basis, and some of the the benefits of that are getting to see, you know, retailers don't roll things out at scale to to test, and so I get to see some of the uh, cool sort of secret stores that are open to the public, but are the ones that are getting the forefront of new technology stuff. And some of the things I'm really interested in and have been fortunate to implement are, um, a lot of, uh, AI vision, uh, software and, and hardware, uh, the ability to view customers, to view product, especially temperature control products. I'm working on a big project now for a, 
um, national pharmacy chain that's using a combination of temperature sensors and uh, visual like thermal cameras to do temperature monitoring for retail products and for the uh, prescription drug uh, that need to be temperature controlled. So I think there's a lot of really interesting tech. It opens up some ethical questions, uh, but there's the technology and the tools behind it are very interesting in uh, vision and identification and um, and temperature and just uh, general climate monitoring in general. I think that's fascinating. I, I, every time I talk to you, there's one of these mind-blowing stories that I always feel like I'm getting a scoop. Um, I, uh, I want to come back to us, actually, and I'll start with you, Adam, in a minute about that ethical debate because I really do think that is a fascinating thing that we should talk about. But, Nick, before we, before we get into that, Nick, tell me about yours. What are the most exciting things happening in the retail space for you, in the retail tech space, I should say? Yeah, I think the most interesting things right now to me in the retail tech space are all the technologies that are rising to replace humans on the store floor or or in other roles, and then the technologies that evolve on top of that to change that role into a new role on their behalf. So I'm really interested in robotics at the store level with the staffing shortages of retail right now in terms of, okay, what are the jobs that a, you know associate does or a team member does that just add no value to them doing it? And it's much better done by robotics or by AI or, or something like that. And then, okay, what new technologies emerge on top of that to not necessarily just eliminate that role, but what is enabling that associate to do a higher level human task uh, to add value to the shopper? Oh, I love that higher level human task. I think because it often is like it is debated as this kind of scary thing that tech's coming in to replace everybody. Which generally speaking, you know, other than um, you know, it it does elevate it elevates us to you know a different status of like what can we do that adds more value because robotic can take over, i.e., building of cars more efficient with with robots. But that's just enabled a whole bunch of people to become experts at managing and repairing robots. Um, so let's talk about that ethical question because like I um I think. Uh, retail in particular is a sector who, which is, um, not particularly trigger happy at anything that's risk. Uh, we're risk averse, especially when it comes to people and like our potential brand reputation. See, uh, you know, data. <laughs> we don't use big data. We don't like big data. We protect it and hide it because we're petrified that if we get hacked or if it gets out or if people realize we're using it and hate it, that we could potentially lose everything. Um, you know, and that comes from some pretty solid wounds from incidents that have happened across the sector. What what are the ethical implications, Adam, that you're seeing debated in the sector around use of things like computer visioning? Boy, I can't think of anybody less qualified to answer this question than me. <laughs> you're always uh, too humble. You know, it, it it's interesting. I when I was younger uh, and and first got into technology and computers, I started out as probably what you consider a black hat uh, using technology, not necessarily for evil, but certainly for uh, deviance. Um, driving, you know, with early laptops, sniffing for open people who had open Wi-Fi um, and things like that, and sort of being anti-establishment and anti-data collection and things like that. And as I've, I've gotten older, partially because the benefit to me as an individual outweighs what I think is the negative, there may be much more negative implications than I understand. But at, at, as an individual at a micro level, I don't necessarily mind data being collected about me, whether it's a camera in store watching my facial features uh, or it's a browser cookie tracking my my surf data um, while I'm browsing the internet. 
at, at an individual level, but I know enough about it, I think, to have made that decision. Where I think it gets tricky and where I think maybe retail at scale does a poor job, and and they have a very short period of time to try to relay this data. They might get one poster as you walk in the sliding doors up front to try to tell you this. Is uh, At scale, is it okay to compile all of that data about people who may not understand the repercussions? I don't know the answer to that. My my gut says it's okay to do it as long as we do a better job of messaging and informing the customer and the in-store shoppers as to what's happening to them um, and maybe what's being done at a at a broad level with that data. Um, so I think if we can get better at that messaging and that delivery, I think it's probably okay. And I think it... Whether or not it's useful, I'm not really sure yet. I don't, I'm not sure anybody really quite knows whether that data is going to be helpful in the long term. Um, but I think it's okay to collect it as long as we do a really, really, really good job of letting the customer know what's being collected and why. I think that's, uh, uh, for what it's worth, uh, I feel you answered that qualified or unqualified very well. Um, thank you for your insight. I actually speak, like, for, there's a, a, a relatively large incident, Australia's second largest telco. Uh, just had essentially every customer's data hacked, including PI, personally identifiable information or PII. Um, so there's a huge focus on it back home in Oz, considering the amount of data that a telco has about each individual. Nick, you live in the space of, of, you know, communicating with people and, and this kind of privacy piece. How, what's your experience been in kind of talking to both retailers and consumers and people on the shop floor about this kind of stuff? I think it's really hard. Uh, everything about it is hard. And I don't think it's going to get any easier in the, the short term, mainly because you have this constant, I'm going to call it ethical battle. Like every retailer on earth right now, I think has this angel and devil on their shoulder right now. And the angel says, yes, let your customers control their data, give them control, let them choose what to do with it. And the devil's like, if we have that data and they don't know what we do with it, I know we'll sell them more. Proven, hard stop. We will for sure sell them. We'll run remarketing campaigns on them. You know, Instagram, you know, or uh, Apple shook the whole industry last year with iOS 14 and 15. And people are not like pumped. I, I haven't talked to anybody in any meeting who's like, oh my God, iOS 14 and 15 was the best thing that ever happened in my business. I wish more stuff like this would happen. This is so great. I'm so happy about it. Nobody, right? So it's like, it's this constant battle of profits and business versus let's call it ethics. It's like, I love, I know I should be eating veggies every day but I still love to eat McDonald's. It's kind of that sort of thing. It's like, I, I want to enable my customers to control their data, you know, have more control, uh, be able to you know, opt out when they do. But I would say most retailers that we work with are, are struggling with this in terms of, okay, I know that, but if we just like literally let them have their data and we have no more you know, first-party data that we can control or, or none of that stuff and, and we just lost it, like we're not going to have a business tomorrow. We can't get people to come back again. We can't communicate with them. So I, I think it's hard. I am. Um, <clears throat> I think that's uh, a great analogy because you know, and it kind of makes me want to question why it's so big right now. Like I know there've been incidents, and I know that is this, um, because it's become a political issue, and therefore it's became you know getting spotlighted by agencies and things like that. But the agencies themselves, to your point, Nick, aren't really bringing us solutions about how we're meant to be able to control these things and protect our business models. I think it's, I think it's going to be absolutely fascinating. Um, I uh, always love the passion that you two bring for retail tech. I'm going to ask you now, uh, what is something that is just either incredibly frustrating 
or incredibly exciting that's sitting across your space. Something that, you know, when you're two glasses of wine in at dinner um, with fellow retail nerds that you just get on your high horse and rant about. Um, I'm going to start with mine. Um, I, uh, I still can't get over the fact that we, um, uh, have forgotten or are ignoring the fact that trend does not equal broad consumer behavior. We still are addicted to the thing that is, you know, exciting for 1% of the, the audience and we treat it like we, we need to pivot our entire business behind that 1%. We just get excited by ideas. And we don't do what we're meant to do, which is fall in love with the evidence. We still keep kind of just like chasing down these silver bullets that potentially might not even work because we just get excited by them and our energy gets behind them. And it drives me bonkers, especially considering that after that, we don't have the innovation practices and principles in our business to actually roll out the exciting thing anyway. Um, anyway, that was my rant. And I, and I keep reading articles especially right now as people are leading into holiday 2022, which is going to be different. It's going to be challenging and people aren't focused on the basics of good holiday retailing. <laughs> They're focused on something new and exciting that's going to get media attention and market attention because we're just too addicted to our share price or getting a good news article instead of actually preparing our shops for great a great holiday season and preparing our poor frontline teams who, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's just ticked over to October and uh, you guys will know this as people who work in stores. This is when the hives start popping up in preparation for the just the intensity that is the next two and a half odd months of working in a retail store. Anyway, end rant. Adam, what's getting you on your high horse? Yeah, I mean, I think what's really, I think what's really exciting about retail moving forward, you know, whether. There's a lot of great tools and a lot of great startups out there that are focusing on getting new talent into retail, even if it's in, uh, you know, sort of non-traditional ways like technology or break fix. Um, but getting, you know, traditional IT people in the stores to fix, uh, store infrastructure. There's also great tools out there around, um, giving existing retail employees the ability to, move between brands and move between stores and add extra shifts. Uh, a great company out of Austin, Texas called Reflex, which is uh, sort of like I said I was earlier, the Uber or Lyft of um, of logistics and direct shelf delivery. They're really jockeying to be the platform by which people who are already in retail, already in the front of store, um, or even doing fulfillment in the stock room, giving them the ability to flex in and flex out of other stores and other brands um, for extra money, for extra experience, for extra exposure. Um, and so I, I think a lot of those tools are popping up around giving folks who are the actual workers the the power and flexibility to control their destiny a little bit more inside the retail space. Not just the retail space. I think those tools are popping up across a lot of industries. but. Um, I see them growing and I see them succeeding in retail specifically because that's where I'm at every day. And I think that's the most exciting, uh, the most exciting aspect about retail in general is that you do have so much control over your own career trajectory. Um, and it really is what you, you get out of it, what you put into it. You're so thoughtful and humble, Adam. I feel like Nick and I are going to come across like these loud, um, angry people, and you're just going to be like really thoughtful and optimistic, which is a great balance. Don't get me wrong, Nick. 
Am I right? Uh, you are absolutely Flattery right. will get you That's everywhere. Exactly, that, is, that is absolutely how it's going to come across. It's going to be interesting, the comments uh, post-release. Uh, I can't wait. That's always the way I like it. I like to cause a little controversy. Yeah, it's funny that you say that because my point was going to uh, basically do that exact thing. Uh, I think Adam is right. I'm going to agree with him in the sense of like upper trajectory and the tools we're giving salespeople and new companies starting to enable those people are improving. But I'm not going to agree with the job that the retail industry is doing with talent as a whole. And the biggest problem, this is my one or whatever we're calling it, my, my rant or my anger, is we just do such a bad job as an industry at getting new people to enter the industry. We do terrible job. Like if you go to the Colleges of America and you serve, I mean, I haven't done this. It'd be interesting to do this eventually. But like if you go to Colleges of America and you walk around the campus, you survey the students, you say, how many of you guys want to have a career in retail? And I mean retail, 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 like at the store level, not how many of you want to go to work at Amazon corporate as a buyer, because that's a huge percentage of people. But how many of you actually want to work in retail? And it's nothing, nothing. Like we don't do a good enough job about showing the world about how you know, rewarding a career in retail can be. Like, why does it have to be an accidental career? Adam, to your point about Ron earlier, it's why can't we actually generate real demand for store associates and and store team members and and get them excited around the job and start to build a pipeline of talent for the next generation? So I don't think if if we can't do that, it's just going to be all robots. Like we're just eventually going to get so low of new demand that there's going to be the old dogs that, you know, have been in the industry forever. Those are going to go away and everything's going to get replaced by robots. Wow. I um, I have actually gone on this rant before on this podcast, so don't panic. You're not alone, and our listeners are used to this controversy. But the um, I'm with you completely. I think we do a. I'm genuinely ashamed of the job that we do at looking after our frontline teams because you know, we are in a in a country where one in ten Americans are um are having food inequality, like they're unable to to feed themselves a healthy nutritionist nutritional diet of which I want to guess a decent chunk of those percentage of people are working in our stores. I don't think that's okay. And I don't think we as a, as an, as an industry can, can feel good about it. And I also think um, that the answers that, you know, we, we often come up with our kind of cliched, um, uh, you know, answer the kind of the, the traditional it's, you know, we will do everything that we can, but it's, you know, we've got a duty to shareholders, et cetera, as well. And like, I agree to that to an extent, but social value has become an increasingly important part about people's calculation and where they're buying and who they're buying from. And I think if you continue to can just serve up that cold excuse, I genuinely think your business is at risk and therefore I think you're being negligent to your shareholders. Um, that's my little build on that rant, Nick, so that if you go down burning, I'll be going down with you. Well, I think there's math that supports that it can work at scale, right? I mean, if you look at the... Costco's of the world who are always on sort of the forefront of um, what the correct pay for associates is um, and early and often in the debate about living wages and uh, what that means to their bottom line versus what it means to their loyalty to employees and customer. If you look at the in and out burgers of the world, I I think it is possible. um, And I think it is possible to still have an eye on the share price, I think you can elevate both of those things. But to both of your points, we, we're doing a poor job of that, uh, of factoring in the human capital portion of this um, when we when we talk about share price and 
talk about elevating uh, retail workers. I think my point earlier was maybe just that uh, the the tools around getting people into retail and giving them the tools to succeed in retail are getting better. But uh, I agree with both of you that we're we're probably not wielding them well enough to bring in new talent, to bring in people who are excited. The, the good news is to, to talk about, I mean, listen, this is the, the the critique and it's easy to critique. I mean, the easiest thing to do, I'm not saying anyone's doing a poor job by any means because the easiest thing anybody can do is critique people's actions because it's hard. It's not not an easy thing. If it was fixed, it, if it was fixable, it'd be fixed. Um, the positive thing is that, uh, I mean, this is the fastest retail has ever been changing uh, in my experience. Andrew, maybe you can speak to it more if someone has a little bit more experience. But uh, in my opinion, in 10 years from now, we're going to see the fastest acceleration of the industry we've ever seen, which means that the job opportunities should change. And in 10 years from now, in 2033, uh, the industry should be a whole new industry compared to the last 10 years, I would say. So I think that will arise for jobs that people, that will create new jobs that people will actually be more attracted to uh, in the right ways that will want to do it as opposed to maybe a cube job. And uh, we can utilize that. I, I agree. I also think you just called me old by suggesting I'm more experienced than you, but that's okay. Um, smarter. I am smarter. comparative to you. Uh, I don't know. I don't know whether I'm definitely not smarter. Um, I've hung out with you enough to know that's not true. Um, I, uh, I adore that as a sentiment. And I, I think you're right. I think as things change, as we keep, you know, again, even just this pivot to realizing that stores are actually matter, actually matter and need to be part of the central part of our, our strategy. I think that will naturally follow on with, you know, how do we look after our people? How do we actually care deeply about the frontline teams and how do we create career pathways? We've seen again, COVID change event. How many, how many stores have we walked past recently with a sign up saying, really sorry, we're short staff. Please be patient. You know, all of those things, you know, there's one way to fix that, which is to create an incredible environment that people are proud of. And, you know, um, I think I think that's uh, I think that's something we need to do because it is an awesome career, um, and uh, let's hope more brands get behind it. Well, I think that's an incredible note to end on. Um, Adam Davis, Nick McHenry, you guys are fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us, um, Adam. How do our listeners get in touch with you if they want to, or do you want to stay anonymous? Uh, Avoid everything. <laughs> no, no. F- find find me on LinkedIn. Uh... Look for Adam Davis and find the one connected to Andrew Smith and Nick McHenry on LinkedIn, and that'll be me. But uh, yeah, reach out and say hello and uh, that you heard this podcast and that you wildly disagree with me. <laughs> and Nick? Uh, I would say you can find me at Nick McHenry on all social media channels, TikTok, Instagram, LinkedIn is probably the easiest for this audience. So Nick McHenry, it's LinkedIn you know, slash Nick McHenry, uh, or you can shoot me an email, Nick, at One Shop Retail, and uh, I'd love to connect. I am. I also, Adam, don't get me wrong. You're also incredibly smart and thoughtful on, on social media as well. But Nick is worth a follow for his hilarious videos alone. Nick is very good at taking, uh, traditional day to day retail challenges and conundrums and making them hilarious. So highly recommend the follow. Gents, thank you both so much for joining me, everybody. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Retailistic. Please like and subscribe and rate us on wherever you find your podcasts. That helps us find other fantastic retail nerds to connect with. Um, Thanks again to Drew Burrows and his colleagues for uh, producing this episode. My name's Andrew Smith, and I'll see you next time for Retailistic. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, everybody.